Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and unlearning the programming within us. Let's uncover your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. I'll share something that I really haven't talked about. In pursuing film and television, I get a call from a friend. He's like, you shoot camera, right? We need an extra camera guy on Dr. Phil this weekend. And then from that, they create the show, The Doctors. And I was right there and I'm reading medical journals. And, and I, I had sort of elevated to the place where I'm a producer, which means I'm going to decide the content in the show. In my family, that's the dark side. It always was. We're the first medical talk show. And so here's this kid that never was anywhere near it. And I'm now inside the dark side and they're showing me every weapon they have and showing me how they use it, how they use it on society, the best way to use it, you know, all of it. So when my mom's asking that question, like, what are you doing there? I was like, I don't know, but it feels like I'm supposed to be here. I mean, they are showing me everything on how the whole world is being manipulated in this space at a certain point. I was really getting uncomfortable with it. And and this march towards SB 277, there's people starting to speak out. I should be the one making media to stop SB 277, making a documentary about this whistleblower. And I am in the one job where I can't go near any of this. Show me what I'm supposed to do. My phone rings in my office. Suddenly, my whole life, all of it made sense. And I'm looking at a documentary and I'm, I realize not only am I equipped to make this film what it needs to be, I'm pretty sure I am the best specific human on the earth to be here right now. Well, welcome back to the great Paul Mai. You've been here before. I have. I was here back in October. Alex uh, invited me out. It was spectacular. The kids call it the greatest vacation we've ever had. Uh, to this date, they were really upset we didn't bring them. <laughs> now, yeah. generally, the, the, when the kids have a great vacation, mom and dad do too. It's, it's sometimes in our experience, it doesn't always line up. The kids have a terrible time and we're just like, you know what? We had a good time. Yeah, we yeah, took care no, of ourselves. No, no it, was, it was wonderful. It was such a beautiful place. And I just, I keep, you know, I mean, what an, an amazing environment. And, you know, we were talking this morning, just the architecture, connection to nature, sort of these binaural beats everywhere you're going. I mean, Alex, honestly, it's really, it's transcendent as far as a place to get away. So really, really happy to be back. Yeah. And it's yeah. great. It was a great surprise for Peyton and I to know that you were going to be showing up here yeah. this weekend. Yeah. Um, this is our second B-Fest and uh, it was really transformative for us last year and it's not in the traditional sense of a retreat where you come you do a bunch of deep work you get all the emotions out and it's heavy and hard and this is more about a celebration of all the work we've done and going kind of deeper into self through all these different offerings and practices that are available to really choose your own adventure uh and what I, I love about you showing up, which is not necessarily a traditional. No, I'm going to wreck all that. But right booking. Now. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to, we're going to be sure to steer it. You know, Adele and I have done a number of podcasts together and frankly, I never know where it's going to go, but it always leads to, for me, so much beautiful learning and perspective and, um, you know, I was, I was, I was trying to figure out like, what's the, 
what's the theme today for the panel, which will be coming up after this and for our conversation? I started to think about something that you and I were talking about last night, how you're like, I'm just this Colorado hippie and look at what's presented to me today. Mm -hmm. And for me, I had a similar journey in that I was a trader in Chicago and I had moved to Austin and had, I guess I was going through this cognitive dissonance, like stuff just didn't make sense. And whether it was my own ideas of what success was and this idea of just always striving, always trying to earn people's respect, earn love, whatever it, whatever it is. And when I really started to let go of that, um, it was amazing. The people that literally started to show up in Austin on our doorstep and you and Lee were two of the people that showed up and I was like, how, what, how Del, Del's coming to our house for this event. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And we, we really connected um, in many ways, but you've been such a guide and mentor for me. And I know for some people here, um, Marie in particular, you've been a voice and um, given us context for what the fuck is going on out there. And sometimes it's a hard truth that not everybody's ready to, to, uh, explore. Uh, fortunately for me, uh, I was ready. I was really ready for some, some different answers than what I had been taught. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, grateful for you to be here today to share some of that and really just let the conversation go where it goes as it always does. So, so thanks for being here. Oh, it's great being here. I'd love to, uh, for you to just give people a little context for, you know, before we get into what's next, how the high wire, your, your weekly program came to be, you know, I know you started, um, working on a show called the doctors yeah, and that was really kind of inspiring in many ways, in, in ways that you had no idea when you stepped into that role. Yeah. First of all, I'd, I'd love to just ask a couple of questions just so I know, like, you know, who's in the room. You know, let me just start with, you know, how many people know who I am? Was everyone in the room, like, aware most of you are? How many of you saw Vaxxed, the, the documentary that sort of launched me into this? How many of you have ever seen an episode of The High Wire? Okay. Uh, how many of you avoided the COVID vaccine? Okay. <laughs> How many of you still think there are good vaccines, just not COVID or anything like that? Okay, a couple of you, great. Um, okay, um, I just don't want to trigger anybody too hard. You're in the middle of this beautiful sanctuary, so <laughs> let's just let's just try and keep it, you know, light. It's always hard to really figure out where I start answering that question, like how did I get here, like what what transpired. But I, I do. Um, I like to bring up my parents because I think conscious parenting is, is super important. And I'm one of these people that was really lucky to have very, very conscious parents. Um, you know, my parents marched in the sixties, total hippies. Um, mom decided just to not vaccinate me, uh, mostly because she was native American, didn't have a lot of money. They would like test all the new drugs and things on her family. You know, every time she was sick, her mom would take the doctor. They try some new product 
And so my mom just remembered being sick all the time and finally just stopped ever saying to her mom, I'm sick. She's like, I'm just going to deal with this on my own. I don't want to go to the doctor. So then when the moment came to, I was the firstborn to vaccinate me, she just said, you know, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. It doesn't make sense. And so there wasn't some science behind it. You know, it was just, it was just sort of her feeling and very instinctual. So I grew up with Edgar Casey was the sort of heart of the uh, teachings that, you know, when it came to health. So, my, you know, my parents sort of used Edgar Casey readings. I don't know how many people know who Edgar Casey is. So probably the most proven psychic um, uh, sort of turn of the century, 1800s, early 1900s. Um, that just was able to heal children by entering their bodies anywhere in the world and, and, you know, in trance saying what was wrong with them. And from those downloads, there's a whole, you know, concept of health and things. And so that was what I was raised with. And, and mostly uh, mind over matter. You know, my mom would say, if you don't take it into your consciousness, it can't affect you. And so if a television started having a cancer commercial, my mom would just, just turn off the TV. Like don't ever, you don't ever embrace those words. You don't bring those into your consciousness. And so it's really interesting, you know, that, and, and part of my upbringing, you know, was, was challenging, like always trusting my own intuition. Uh, obviously my parents were sort of anti-establishment because the, the whole sixties marching. And so I was raised with, you are the most important authority in your life. And that meant, and, and really when you're raising kids, you know, question authority is not the, the easiest lesson to raise them in as the primary focus, because there's only one authority in the house and it's the parents. And so, <laughs> you know, we have a loud, um, argumentative family. Uh, my wife can attest to that. Um, and, uh, but, you know, now I find myself in debates all the time and I feel very well equipped by it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm going to, I'll share something that I really haven't talked about. And it is, you know, I, I always sort of gloss through this part of it. So I wanted to be a filmmaker. My dad was a minister. My dad was a very dynamic, um, um, I would say more of a motivational speaker as a unity minister, but he kind of pushed all the outside the envelope of what that was. I think it was just the closest to where he was at, but, you know, uh, taught meditation to huge crowds of people and of course in miracles and, and all of this. So, you were on that path as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm stuck in the church running sound and lighting. You, can't, you have no choice, but to sort of, you know, be a part of that path on some level. Um, uh, and so my dad would have wanted me, I think, you know, to be a, a minister. And I would always say, dad, I just want to affect more people than just some room full of people. I just feel like I'm here for a reason. And my parents raised me thinking that, that we were all here with an ability to change the world. And, you know, I guess if you program your children to believe that there's something to that socialization. And I always wonder how much of what I'm doing is is my own sort of moral authority or my own innate instinct or how much of it's because my parents socialized me to believe I could make a difference in the world. Like I, I'll never know the answer to that. Right. I, I only am what I am. So in pursuing film and television, and I remember I went to Hollywood, my dad said, you know, my dad had done some writing too and dappled in that space, but he said, you know, Hollywood just demeans the human spirit don't be the, don't be a part of that. Like raise us up. If you're going to, you know, get into arts and things on that level, make sure that you, you, you show the beauty in humanity. 
Um, so really it was sort of a very long troubled fail, you know, like I wouldn't say failed entertainment career, but I waited tables for 20 years trying to get something to happen. And, um, one day a friend, you know, and I was doing theater and short movies and music videos and all that. And, and, and then had screenplays that were being options. So it was, it was always there really close, but let's just jump to get a call from a friend that's, you know, like, he's like, you shoot camera, right? I was like, yeah. He's like, well, look, we need an extra camera guy on Dr. Phil this weekend. We're doing this love smart Island thing. And would you want to do that? And I said, yeah, sure. I mean, it pays better than waiting tables. And, um, that began a whole journey. I ended up, you know, one thing after another, I worked for Dr. Phil as a producer and a field shooter and going out and doing stakeouts on couples and are they cheating on each other? Like all this stuff. <laughs> and then from that, they create the show, the doctors. And I was right there. I was the top at that point. I was one of the top field producers for Dr. Phil. I would do anything. I found it really interesting. And so I went around and started creating the show uh, where we're going to, you know, celebrate medicine. And my mom called and she's like, what are you doing working on a medical talk show? You know, of all the people in the world, you have never been to a doctor. I'd never been to a doctor in my life ever. Um, it wasn't, we didn't, never went to a pediatrician. I mean, none of it. We, in fact, my mom barely would take me to a chiropractor. I mean, I'd have to like, you know, fall, you know, throw myself off a cliff skiing, <laughs> thought I broke my arm. And the best thing is, all right, we'll go to a chiropractor and see if we can't straighten you out. So what was really interesting, I end up in this medical space and um, I uh, start producing there and I'm reading medical journals and, and I, I had sort of elevated to the place where I'm, you know, I, I was shooting surgeries at first, but then eventually I became a producer, which means I'm going to decide what is the content in the, in the show. And one of seven producers doing that. And I'm starting to read medical journals and try to put shows together. Now I had a, you know, you're, we're all competing for the hot medical story. Um, and there's not a lot, it's not a lot of breaking news in medicine. So the seven of us are like, it was like a war, you know, and two in the morning, we'd have this thing called dibs. If you saw a news story around medicine, like you'd had to like email everybody and say, dibs, this is my story. I got this. Right. And so it was very, you know, cause there's just not a lot. But I had a secret weapon in that I was going to read Health Rangers. I'm, I'm reading Mike Adams. I've got Dr. Mercola. Like no one in the entire building is thinking of looking there. And I'm finding stories there. And so I was really challenging the medical authority. But here's, what I think, what I want to say is that um, I worked, I'm on this medical talk show. So our sponsors are Merck and Pfizer and Sanofi Aventis. I would get, I'd have to go out and shoot interstitials, like things with Merck on a new product and how they want to create fear and how they want to, you know. And so what was so weird is I had never, ever even looked at medicine or science. Like, and there's this argument right now in germ theory, terrain theory. I wasn't in either of those camps. To me, I was raised, all of this is in our minds, right? All of this is what we decide to make of it. And so suddenly I'm being indoctrinated into germ theory, really like disease and all the things my mother taught me to avoid. And um, they're teaching me the tools that they use to manipulate the world. Um, we're the first medical talk show. And so here's this kid that never was anywhere near it. And it was literally like in, in my family, that's the dark side. It always was. And I'm now inside the dark side and they're showing me every weapon they have 
and showing me how they use it, how they use it on society, the best way to use it, you know, all of it. So when my mom's asking that question, like, what are you doing there? I was like, I don't know, but it feels like I'm supposed to be here. I mean, they are showing me everything on how the whole world is being manipulated in this space. Meanwhile, I'm doing shows that are challenging that medical establishment. I'm the highest rated producer on the show. So everything, basically everything I want to do, I'm getting to do. I walk in and pitch a show that I found like a story on Mercola. And they're like, Dell, that doesn't even make sense. I don't understand what it's about. And normally executive producers, if you've ever worked in television, are screaming at every other producer, you moron like this. <laughs> With me, it's like laughing and joking. Like, Dell, it doesn't make any sense. Like, is it going to rate? It's like, doesn't all my stuff rate? They're like, yeah, it does. It's like, how about you let me do it? <laughs> and that was sort of the ride I was on. So all of that to say, and, and I think when we talk about, you know, what we're all doing here in space is like this. I get this sense most of you are in an evolved space where we look around us and how people are all around us. Um, I think we're here for a reason. And I really felt like, I know, I mean, I, I know without a shadow of a doubt that I was put there for a reason. And so then what happened, I mean, as the story goes, I'm uh, doing a bunch of controversial stories. The lawyer for the doctors said, I'm the most expensive producer they have. Everything I'm doing is challenging industry. I'm going after Monsanto. I'm, you know, all these different things uh, in a very creative way. And then I stumbled upon the story of a whistleblower inside the CDC. Uh, not even stumbled. I got a call from someone I'd done a show with that said to me when I was working, a radiologist. And uh, it was a very, I, it's, it could be in its own book, that story, but I did this show with him. And while we were working on it, he said, look, you don't want me on, on the doctors. I was like, what do you mean? He said, well, if you look me up online, I'm considered to be a quack. I was like, oh, why is that? He's like, well, I'm one of these doctors who believe that vaccines cause autism. I said, oh, well, this, this story has nothing to do with that. He's like, yeah, but it's going to undermine my credibility. I was like, don't, I'll worry about that. And then he said, all right, would you ever do a story on that? I said, not not unless some game changer happens. I mean, th this show is pretty locked in on vaccines don't cause autism, but if something big happens, let me know. And so he did, he called me about a year later, said there's now a whistleblower inside the CDC that has handed over 10,000 documents proving that they've committed scientific fraud on the vaccine safety studies and specifically the study done on, on the MMR vaccine and autism in, in 2000, 2004. So that, you know, you know, I pitched it. it as one of the only stories my executives wouldn't let me near. Uh, they weren't going to piss off the CDC. They weren't going to piss off Merck that, that you know, was a sponsor of ours. And so, I mean, I, there's so many miracles that put me in there. Um, but let me go ahead and just let me talk about that for a second. So I'm here I am. I haven't been vaccinated. I am watching an interview. This, I see the interviews of this, this guy inside the CDC, just like the doctor had said, two weeks later, I start seeing these excerpts from this interview. I don't know where it's coming from, but Dr. William Thompson is saying, we manipulated the study uh, on, on MMR and autism. We saw a strong correlation, four times the increase in autism amongst kids that got the vaccine uh, at 12 to 18 months versus those that waited after three years old. So this was a study where everyone got MMR, okay? You have to make that clear. And just by delaying it, the kids that had delayed the vaccine were four times less likely to get autism. That is such a, it's a powerful, powerful signal. And so what they ended up doing is they kicked half the kids off of the study to try and change that effect. And that's just the beginning of what 
is I think one of the great scientific frauds of all times. And so looking at that story, I couldn't go near it. And, um, and obviously like, is it true? I want to meet the guy, what's going on there. And then I probably, you know, as fate would have it, I don't think I would have, you know, I was just watching it saying like, somebody's going to cover this and no one did. It was getting shut down, censored everywhere. I started realizing, wow, I mean, that is, there's a huge cover up going on here on this story. Cause this is a, this is a really big, this is the, I thought if this is real, this is the biggest medical story of my lifetime. But I would have let it go, except that in about a month later, I get a call from the stage um, and uh, I had a show that had a guest that had just dropped out and um, for I forget what reason. So they're like, I get a call from an executive like, Dell, your show's going live tomorrow. Uh, we need to fill your fifth segment. We're taping that right now. Come on over. We got a story we're putting in your show. So I run over the stage and I got to take notes really quick so that I can go and edit it really quick. And it is the moment where Senator Richard Pan in California walks out on the stage to propose this brand new law. He has SB 277 that's going to force vaccinate every kid in California. So for, I mean, I don't know if he'd even, I had never heard of that until the doctors. I'm not sure if that's the first time it was announced. First time I ever heard of it. And I'm thinking of all the people that I'm sitting here and this guy is to me, the end of the world's I know it, my world. I'm not, I have my first child already. I haven't vaccinated that child. I'm not vaccinated. And this guy is going to make it illegal to live the way I'm living. And I just remember thinking, all right, uh, this is the moment I may have to come clean with my executive producers on who I am. You know what I mean? I've been kind of a Trojan horse in here, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I am not going to have my name on this. This is not going in my show. I went over the executives and just said, look, that was like, this guy went on for like 15 minutes and I have a two minute slot. I don't think you want to cut it down that much. That shouldn't go in my show. And they're like, yeah, yeah, good point. And I did something else. But from that moment on, now I have a moral problem, an ethical problem of being on the doctors. They are promoting the heck out of this idea that every kid should be forcibly vaccinated. And that is just antithetical to anything that, that I believe. And, um, at a certain point, I was really getting uncomfortable with it. And, and this march towards SB 277, there's people starting to speak out. And I'm thinking, my God, I should be the one in media telling the truth about vaccines. I should be the one that's like making media to stop SB 277. I should be, you know, making a documentary about this whistleblower. And I am in the one job on the planet where I can't go near any of this. There's something wrong. Something, this, my life is out of balance now. And um, I sat down when it got really tough one day in my office and just decided I'm going to just pray. And um, I just prayed and said, God, I feel like I've had a purpose and I really appreciated this job. I really appreciated this journey I've been on. It's been really interesting and great, but now I have a skill set that I believe I'm the one that is supposed to be making a documentary about this whistleblower. I'm supposed to be using media now to save the children of the world from this sickness and how they've taught me how to wield it on people. I, I'm the perfect weapon. And um, I'm, in the wrong, I'm in the wrong place. Like, guide me. Like, give me a sign. Literally, just show me what I'm supposed to do. And I, you know said, amen. And 30 seconds later, my phone rings in my office and I pick it up 
And it's this PR uh, agent manager that I'd talked to. She was in natural health and things. She knew that I was sort of like the poorest place. She might get some of her stories in. She said, hi, Del, it's Donna. So hi, Donna, what's going on? She's like, do you know who Dr. Andrew Wakefield is? I'm like, yes. And for those of you who may not know, this is literally the doctor that said the MMR vaccine is causing autism, you know, in the world. Uh, so it's obviously at the heart of, you know, the story I'm interested in. And I said, yeah, why? And she said, would you like to meet him? I said, absolutely. And uh, she said, well, he's going to be at a, in three days, he's coming to Hollywood. He's going to be in the Hollywood Hills. And uh, he's just, there's a small group of people, like 40 people can meet him. And uh, then I, I wanted to invite you. And she said, but look, I'm actually going to deny someone being there so that you can have that spot. So I need to know you're going to show up. I said, Donna, if you knew when you just called me, you would know I would skip a family wedding right now to, to be there. And I didn't know, look, I didn't really know a lot about Andy. I just knew he's this controversial figure in the middle of this story that, you know, has always been about vaccines. The only thing I know is my mom didn't vaccinate me. I don't know, I don't know the science around it or any of that. But clearly, this must be someone I'm supposed to meet. 30 seconds after I prayed about it. So my wife, Lee, and I did some investigations on Andy and what his wife looked like and just try to show up with some understanding. And we get to this backyard event in Hollywood. And, um, and uh, Lee goes over and starts talking to his wife. Uh, and I go over and she's like, come on over. And then she invites Andy over. And so for about 30 minutes... I just, I always want to know, like, is I'm going to know if this guy's legitimately the worst human that's ever existed, which is how science portrays him or whether he's real. And I don't know how many people in the room have ever met Andy Wakefield. It takes about 30 seconds to realize this is one of the most beautiful, brilliant, intelligent, grounded, amazing human beings that has ever walked this earth. And, and so after 30 minutes, I was just like, you know, what about vaccines, this and that, you know, and he just had answers to everything. But I didn't know it, somebody walks up and they're like, uh, Andy, you got to do your pitch. I'm like, your pitch? He's like, oh, sorry, Dell. You know, and meanwhile, there's a whole group of people that are pissed off that I'm stealing all this time, right? <laughs> they're there to meet him. And I'm just, I've had him, you know, for, for 30 minutes. He's like, all right, hold on, Dell. And he goes and steps up on this box. I always say like, a, I swear it was like a soapbox. So like you got in a soapbox <laughs> in this backyard and, um, so they like, oh, whatever this is about. He gets up and he says, look, these laws like SB 277, this is a, this is a, they're trying to take over the world. Like they, you are going to have no control of your children's bodies. You're not going to have control of your own bodies. You've got to stop this. I'm telling you, I know more now than when I got into this and he was laying it all out. And then he said, so, but why I'm here and what I'm here to do about it is that for the last year and a half, I've been making a documentary about Dr. William Thompson, a whistleblower inside the CDC. I was like, I mean, I can't even, I still get chills when I think about that moment. It's like time stops and that, you know, the clouds part and the sunbeam just comes down on you. And I was just like, oh my God. Oh my God, three days ago, I prayed, give me a sign 30 seconds later. And now this is the guy who's got a documentary, I guess, ready to go. <laughs> um, and so I remember the, the thought was, as he was finishing up, I know I'm, I know this is my destiny. 
But I remembered growing up in Boulder and all the hippies and friends and things. And like, you know, those people that come up to you like, Dell, I mean, I had a dream that we were going to work together. And like, you're like, whoa, cray cray. <laughs> you know, I just thought, don't be that guy. <laughs> okay. This is a scientist. Um, and so I just asked him, so where's this documentary at? He said, well, we're almost finished. Um, we need distribution and we need a soundtrack. I said, all right, well, let me see what I can do. I mean, I'll, I'll see what I can do. Now, I didn't know at that time that I was the producer that had been brought to meet him. Like, so I'm thinking he doesn't know who I am and I'm going to work in slowly. I only later would find out, oh no, it was all about you. I was like, oh, okay. But in that moment, so I, had, I thought, okay, I got to find a music. I got to find a way in. So let me see if I can think of music. And my wife, um, had picked up, she never would ever pick up hitchhikers, but about a year earlier, <laughs> a year earlier, for whatever reason, she'd been driving up to Bank of Canyon, sees a guy carrying what, what like two djembes on his shoulder or something, like just like schlepping up and like pretty with his safe. thumb out, pretty safe, <laughs> takes the guy into her car, and it turns out that he does soundtracks for like Terrence Malick films, these giant you know, sweeping skate music things. And so he's the only guy I know really that actually could do a score on a movie. And so I call him and I'm, you know, I'm, Hey, Francesco, uh, look, um, would you ever consider doing music for a movie, uh, you know, about vaccines? And he said, Oh, you mean those things that are killing our children? And I was like, <laughs> I'll call you back. <laughs> And then I called a production company or a distribution company that had almost worked with several times that had made a lot of controversial documentaries, one of them being out Fox. Like they really went after Fox News and so they got into the middle of that controversy. And so I called them and said, would you make a documentary about vaccines made by arguably the most controversial figure in this, Dr. Andrew Wakefield? And um, they said, are you involved? And I said, yeah. And like, if you're involved, we'll take a look at it. And so I called Andy and I said, look, I think I have an angle to music. I think I um, can get you distribution, but I have to see what I'm talking about. I have to see this film now. And he said, well, come on down to my house. And so I flew down, I think two days later. So now we're seven days out from having said a prayer in my office. I, I, I remember when I got to his house, it was late. I got a late flight in and he said, just come in. And so I came in and there's this huge alarm system, like on the door or whatever. And I go down to into my room. He said, just go down there and I'll meet you in the morning. And I realized I forgot something in the car and I go up and I see the lights bleeping. I was like, oh, I, I don't want to open this door and just like set an alarm off. And I, you know, I think, of course, it's Andy Wakefield. This guy must be afraid of dying all the time. You know, mm -hmm. the next morning when I met him, I was like, oh, how does the alarm system work? He's like, oh, I don't use that. I was like, aren't you afraid of dying? He's like, they'd have killed me by now, I think, mm -hmm. you know? And so, so he takes me down that morning to watch this documentary. And um, it has all, I mean, he said, here's, he stacks the like 10,000 documents in two, like piles, like this big next to me. It says, anything you want to know, it's all collated. There's tabs. You can look at all the evidence that, that's been handed to us. And here's the documentary. And I watched it. And it was just incredibly, it was made, it was so clearly made by a scientist. It was just, and almost like a legal scientific case to, to prove he was right. And, but it just graphs and science and graphs and science. And this really wasn't, I was like, nobody's going to watch this. 
I mean, it's just, it's like going to a, you know, medical class, you know, um, and I realized in that moment, as I was looking at it, that suddenly my whole life, all of it made sense. You know, all the, all of the mistakes, all the films that didn't get made, my successes, my failures, I ended up on Dr. Phil. I ended up on this doctor's television show. They show me how this whole system works, a whole science I never cared about or thought about. Now I, I love it. I'm in the middle of it. And I'm looking at a documentary and I'm, I realize not only am I equipped to make this film what it needs to be, I'm pretty sure I am the perfect, most, you know, um, best specific human on the earth to be here right now. And in that moment, I realized I had just run into my destiny. This hole that I'd had, this thought that I was here to make a difference in the world. And I've been doing sweat lodges and all of this self-healing, trying to say there's something in this earth I'm supposed to be doing. I cannot figure out what it is. And um, in that moment, I thought this is it. I, not only, I mean, I didn't, none of it made sense. I was literally trained by something bigger than me. Who would have ever taken this journey? It just was outside of anything I'd ever planned on. And, um, and so when people come up and they're, you know, they say, you know, it was amazing that you risked everything and left television and, you know, left all that behind to make this documentary. I mean, it was the easiest decision I have ever made in my life. It was so clear to me for this, I was born and um, the rest is kind of history. Um, so thank you for just wrapping that up in such a beautiful thread, because I think that's such a, a big thing for, for all of us. Do I matter? Why am I here? And I think we get impatient and we start down, you know, these different paths. And sometimes we feel like it's the wrong path. But as my friend Boyd Vardy likes to say, the path of not here is part of the path of here. So it's like, you don't know until you go to the doctors and your mom's like, why are you on that show? Yeah. And you, you know, didn't really know why, but you were gathering you know, you're, you're building up your arsenal to really understand what's going on. You, you hadn't had exposure to that. And then these things, these breadcrumbs just appear and you just continue to follow them. And then boom, it all unfolds like, oh, this is it. Yeah. I was saying to you last night that, you know, when I was struggling with what am I doing with my life? I'm 20 years of waiting tables. Nothing's going anywhere. All the things, just fish that got away stories one after another. And then, you know, I read the, you know, the secret, like we all did, and the book just pissed me off. I was like, I've done every step, each one of these guys, and none of this is working for me. Right. And, and then, you know, I get to this place in my life and I said, I don't want to, you know, I'm going to be another one of those jackasses that writes a book. Here's how you do it. Here's how you find your destiny or whatever. Um, but, you know, as I, as I think about it, number one, at least if my life is some example or there, there can be no wrong turn, right? I, I have to look back and say there was absolutely, if, was there some other destiny I could have run into? It just, it's so, it's so crazy how perfect it is what I landed in. 
that I imagine all of it, all the getting off, all the times I got fucked up on drugs, maybe we got a lot. I mean, I wasn't a drug addict, but you know, like trying everything to find some space, you know, all of these journeys only to sort of land right there in that moment, which all I can imagine, I have to believe the universe is honorable. I have to believe that we are all equal you know, in, in, you know, created in the image and likeness of God, that we are all being handed or, or are directly a part of a set of decisions that has a destiny for us. Um, I tell myself that because otherwise then the universe is unfair, but if that's true, then what is, what is the message that those of us, I think many are in the room that find that destiny. What, what do you share other than you know, I guess all those times I was missing it, all the times I'm sitting in the sweat lodge, you know, what's my destiny? What's my destiny? I will say um, a lot started shifting. The, the, the healer I was working with or shaman or whatever you call it, we'll want to call him. Uh, we were doing like a sweat every, you know, men's group once a month for like two or three years. And I remember right about before my life started shifting one day, he said, gentlemen, I'm hearing a lot of the same prayers in here uh, for years. <laughs> Turn the page. And, um, he says, I just, the great spirit must have answered you by now. So I have to imagine you're not listening. And it was true. It was actually true. I, I, I realized that I was trying to force, when I was asking this question, what am I supposed to do? I wanted to be a movie maker and I was going to be making movies. And so anything else that wasn't a movie, I wasn't listening to it. So it was just, I'm so, so I was trying to demand that my, that, that hole that was going to be filled, that I, I was going to be filled the way I wanted it to be filled. And I came out of that and I really embraced that and thought, wow, um, he's right. I must, the answer has been given to me. And it was in that moment, honestly, I was making television. I was faxing it in on the doctors and Dr. Phil and still trying to get a movie made the whole time and getting doors shut in my face. And I'd already won an Emmy award at this point on the doctors. And my friends were like, dude, I was like, yeah, but it's not what I'm supposed to be doing. And I finally I came out of that sweat and I thought, you know what? Instead of, you know, focusing on film, which is slamming his door in my face all the time. And I'm giving no attention to television, which everyone loves me and is opening the door everywhere I go, but it's not what I want to do. I don't want to be a daytime talk show, you know, or something like that. Uh, but I said, let me focus where I'm being loved. Let me just let go of this 18 year old idea of I'm going to be the next Steven Spielberg. Let me let go of being held hostage by that and go where I, where love, where I really am being loved. And, um, that shift within a year, ironically, I'm watching my name on a movie screen in theaters all across the world. And so, you know, it was letting go of the need to make a movie that somehow it did end up being a part of this journey. But again, I just think that I think we all are, and I think we are living in a spectacular moment of manifestation. And we can really manifest real darkness upon ourselves right now. It's, it's, it's open to us or in this tumultuous energy. I mean, there's just a brilliant kinetic energy. If we can find that destiny, that focus right now and use that energy, I think we can really 
be those world changers that we thought was like mythical growing up. Yeah. What I hear from this is just surrender and finally just letting go. And it's not like you just throw at this vision of what you're meant to do, but rather than focus on a, a key point, like this is the only way that I'm meant to show up in the world. It's like heading in that direction. And then, as you said, following the love, following like what your true gifts are that maybe you don't even know, but others are, are affirming that and, and opening to that. And then just being curious about where that leads us. And it led you obviously to Vaxxed and then starting the high wire mm -hmm. and then how you met Aaron Siri with, I can't like it, it just in, in today what's happened. Like it's, it's incredible of, I feel like it's that moment of surrender and then all the doors open doors that you didn't even know existed. Well, let me speak to that. I mean, can I, can I share our, our story, honey, about Orion? I mean, I just want to sort of, what leads me, and it is, it's all about surrender. Um, part of the journey, Lee and I were pregnant with our second child. And um, we had had our first child at home and we had done one ultrasound. That was it, 26 weeks or something? Whatever, 20 weeks, just so the midwives would know what was going on. And um, the night before, and it's the only time we would go to a regular doctor, right? To get the ultrasound. Otherwise, we're just hanging with the midwives. And um, the, uh, the night before, I couldn't sleep. All night long, I just kept thinking Down syndrome, Down syndrome, Down syndrome. And I was like, oh my God, Dell, like in, in coming from how I was raised, like you're going to manifest something here, like let it go, like just clear, clear your head, let it go. I just couldn't. But I didn't say anything to Lee. I didn't want to, you know. Um, upset her or anything. And we went to get an ultrasound and, you know, this, this old guy and, you know, he's going through the whole process and after, he's been like quiet for like five minutes or it felt like an eternity. And I've shot surgeries a lot. I've been in rooms when the surgery is going wrong. There's a real energy to that in medicine. And this is one of those moments. And so I said, what's, what's going on? And uh, he said, well, your baby has a hole in their heart. And Lee immediately was very emotional, but I was like, okay, I've, I've done, I've done shows about, we can do surgery in utero to fix. Like, is, so is, is that the only problem? He's like, well, no, that's what I've been spending time on. The circumference of the child's head is too round. The distance from his wrist, to the elbow isn't correct. I, I think you have a chromosomal issue. Um, and it, again, this is, this is one of those stories that has so many incredible, um, parts to it, but we decided to get an amnio, which we said we would never do. Uh, but now we want to know what's going on and, and, uh, and we have to wait till Monday to find out what's taking place. And so in that, there's a few things that happened. Lee, I would say has sort of, uh, I call it, light, you know, Catholic light, you know, had been to Easter and Christmas and things, but I know it's enough that she's not going to abort, which is really your only option. At least I'm thinking that's going to be her decision. But for me, my dad's a new age minister. We believe in reincarnation. You know, you know, children can come back. Like there's like, there's a whole way to excuse this if this was a decision I wanted to make. So I really sat with it. And I thought, and I talked, called my parents, my dad's like, Dell, your life is difficult enough. You know what I mean? You, you got, you finally have things going 
this is going to lead to probably a handicapped child that's going to really, and, and that's not fair to the soul of that child to trap them in this body. And like, this is like this whole advice I'm getting. And, and I remember just thinking, so I could technically kill this baby and not have to handle all the difficulty that that would bring. And this is a decision that's, you know, for, you know, whether or not Lee is going to make that for me, am I going to make that decision? And I really grappled with the, the concept of karma on that. And it wasn't, I don't, I, I don't believe that karma is that, you know, I hit somebody. So it means that I'm going to get hit. I'm going to get it back. I believe karma is that the moment I hit somebody, I now live in a world where people hit each other. I have to be worried about being hit. That is now a part of my consciousness, my experience and everything I do. So I thought, what is the, what is the world I live in? If I kill a child or, you know, this existence to make my life more convenient. And I just thought into my future, that means every problem I am ever going to come onto is going to be all my responsibility. And because I've killed, I kept a life from coming to this world to fix a problem. What, you know, where will I stop with that? And, and the amount of responsibility of that. And I just said, oh, hell no. No, I don't want, I don't want that much responsibility. This is on God. I'm, I'm handing this to you, God. If I'm supposed to have a child that is, you know, has handicaps or whatever it is, that's on you. I'll carry it. I'll be in love in that space. Um, and I truly uh, did. That's why I, I told that story, surrender uh, in that and through that. And Lee and I, um, uh, had an amazing experience and incredible conversations for the entire nine months. We made it all the way up until the day before the child was due. And then we lost him uh, in utero. But I will say this, that, you know, as a producer, I, I think of all that can go wrong ahead. I, I can fix things. I, you know, I predict where it's going. I'm really good at getting things done. And through that process of going with that, that child and, and through that experience to totally surrender to whatever this, this was bigger than me. This was just bigger than I can do anything about. I found God in, in that life form. Orion taught me that um, something powerful, so beautiful is taking place. And all I can do is be present and show up for what I'm being asked to do. And it's hard to explain, but in the surrender to I'm not in control, I am not able to change everything in the world. God is in this. I developed such an amazing belief that anything is possible through God. And it is become a very empowering and people like, how do you have the courage you have to do the things that you're doing? And there's no way I could do this without God. Uh, I don't think about my life. I don't think about, I don't worry about the things, you know, I don't worry whether I can win or wherever it's going. I know I'm being guided that God has got this. And all I am is a vessel in this powerful raging river 
it would be stupid to fight it. I think all of our lives, we're just trying to just work our way through it instead to just really say, okay, all I can do is use this powerful inertia to try and, you know, move with it and achieve something in it and um, surrender. It's, it's so hard. Our egos really, really fight it. Um, but it's the only way we actually uh, can change this world is it because we don't do it. We have got to get out of the way and let ourselves be the vessels that are being asked in this time to, to readjust, to get reconnected to source. Source is calling upon us. We're not going to brain it out. We're not going to outthink everything. The answers are coming to us. I really believe that. I think that, that our destiny is in us. But we've got to say yes. We've got to go where we're loved. We've got to follow the, the flow of energy that's moving through us. Stop fighting it. It's all, I, mean, I have to imagine that that must be true for all of us. No, thank you for, and thank you to Lee and you yeah. for sharing that. That's really powerful and really lands for sure that idea of surrender. And, and uh, yeah, I think we all, and in those challenging periods, whatever it is, everyone has their, their different story. And, you know, Peyton and I have had some challenging times in the past year that, uh, you know, you want to fix it. It's the first place you go, you go right to the head and you're like, okay, how can I get out of this? How can I fix this and make things better? And when there's nothing available, there's no choice but to surrender and, yeah. and just hold that the hope and the faith that you will get through this, this, you know, this too shall pass and there will be greater understanding when you're on the other side of it. And it will take, you know, I'm sure even years from now, I'll look back on this particular period and, you know, have even more gratitude than I have right now for something on objectively is pretty shitty. Um, but yeah, thank you for that. I, I would I would say even for me, I'd take it a step further than that. I think that these challenges in our life, uh, you know, and I've talked to a lot of people about this, it's those super, super difficult times that make that really are the guidance. We are guided by tragedy. You know, these moments are when we see, once we, we find our place in, 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 you know, different steps of our evolution, when we're really in a place where we can just, we're so grateful for how great things are. It's when we reflect back and say, oh my God, that turning point where I was lost was that super difficult, challenging experience. I always say for me, the image I hold is that like, we're all wandering in the dark, you know, we don't know where we're going. And then suddenly you run smack in the wall and you break your nose. And in that moment, it's the most clear that the direction you're supposed to be going is 180 degrees that way, <laughs> right? The rest of the time we're lost, but now I have real clarity. So what, you know, and, and Lee and I, as we've gone through things, I've tried to teach myself to actually really enjoy the pain, like just take it in and say, I know I will look back on this in my rearview mirror and have total gratitude for it. So why can't I have gratitude for it while it's taking place? Mm. 
And, and for some reason, I always think about Lee and I were in an act. This, this is what comes to mind. We were in an <laughs> acting class. That was a method acting class. It was all, but this is when we met in, in New York years ago. And, uh, Method acting is all about like sense memory and, you know, being able to call up memories you've had so that you can be a better actor on stage. And our teacher told the story that he had a famous um, uh, student and really rich family. And she got kidnapped and was like, you know, grabbed and hooded and thrown in the trunk of the car. And, and she eventually they paid the ransom. Whatever it was, she ends up being released like four or five days later. He said she came back to an acting class. And we're all like, oh my God, what is this? She's like, it was amazing. And let me say, she's like, at first course, I was like totally terrified and panicked. But then I realized I'm either going to live or die. But if I live, it'd be really stupid to have just been like freaked out the whole time. Like, let me check in because this is going to be the best sense memory exercise you'll ever have. And so just, <laughs> so just turn the whole thing into an acting experience, right? You know? So I think about that, right? Instead of like just, ah, we're going through something. Do I get even more out of it if I could find gratitude while it's happening? Oh, that's you know? beautiful. <laughs> of course, of course you have that story. And I do, I do love it. It is, I feel like it's a, uh, those really challenging times are a reorientation to what your path is. And I think when things are great, we love that. We're blissful. Mm -hmm. And like you said, the lights are off and we're just going through and we're in flow and there's a beauty in that. Yeah but you, you do lose your way. And I think that's, you know, in my experience, it was like, oh, we just lost our way. And there's fucking carnage all yes. over the place. Yeah. And we didn't even see it because the lights were off. Yeah. So, okay, okay. So how do we slowly pick up the pieces and rebuild and repair and then go forward and just have that patience and that trust that things are going to work out as they're intended to. Yeah. yeah beautiful. Should we open the floor up to some, sure. some Q and A? Yeah. Anyone want to, uh, there we go. Miss Marie. Okay. Yes, please. So, um, when we talked a little bit earlier and we'll go into your vaccines and just, the, you know, your parents didn't vaccinate you and I did similar with my children, but I want to, just emphasize something that you're bringing out that's really important because, you know, I was just this young woman with kids trying to not poison them. Mm -hmm. um, so everything was delayed. And this is my daughter over here, Vanessa, no. who actually was taken out of her class at her little Valentine's Day party because she wasn't vaccinated. So <laughs> it's okay now. <laughs> yeah. So of course, you know, I have to get it. There's a lot of pressure. And what's happening is what you're doing is helping those of us who don't know. Oh my gosh, you know, I don't think this is a great idea. You're opening eyes to people who don't know anything about it but also those of us who are going, well, like, I have to now, mm -hmm. you know, so I don't even know my rights. I don't want to do this, but she's going to miss all the Valentine's Day parties. Right. Um, and that's just a small part of it, but people don't even realize what their rights are. They don't know they don't have the information and they, because they don't know. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. How do, how, how do 
you recommend people really understanding their rights in, 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 and granted they're, they're being taken away at a rapid pace. You know, um, it's difficult. It, what, what I'm involved in is difficult. It's difficult to have to say to people, you know, intelligent people say, Mitell, are you telling me that I'm not supposed to trust the CDC, National Institutes of Health, WHO, the FDA that you, some journalists have got this figured out and all these other world-renowned scientists have got it wrong. And I'm like, I get it, man. That is, that is a, a hard pill to swallow. <laughs> it's a heavy lift. Uh, the answer to that, I cannot fit on a bumper sticker. <laughs> so you got some time? <laughs> yes, sir. Um, but, you know, just, just this week, the, um, in uh, Michigan, in Chicago, I guess, uh, Lori Lightfoot had, you know, taken away all these, you know, uh, government jobs from people and, and um, because they wouldn't get vaccinated. And the courts just gave them back their jobs and back pay. Uh, same thing happened in New York. So, yeah. New York, the same thing. And the judge was even more specific there saying this product never stopped infection or transmission. And therefore, there was no advantage to being vaccinated. This was essentially illegal. And I just think, where would we be if no one had resisted, right? If those people hadn't resisted, then we would have no precedent set. Now imagine where we're at next time our government decides to overstep its boundaries. We will be able to say New York, Chicago, you know, like all these states, a lot of the lawsuits that we've won through my nonprofit, you can never do this again because we've just set precedents. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know how I say to everyone out there, you know, are we all like resist, resist, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if, if we all have a different journey here and maybe that's just a specific group of people that are supposed to stand for that. And the rest of us just walk off the cliff, which is in many ways, this vaccine is going to be a cliff for a lot of people. It is proving to, uh, you know, I mean, we, I could go on and on, but we are watching all cause excess mortality worldwide unexplained, worse than COVID itself. What is doing that? You can continue to listen to WHO and CDC if you want. Uh, they're trying to tell us all they say now. Tony Fauci saying, you know, though we had the worst death rate, this is what his quote this week basically was that, I don't know what happened. It doesn't make sense. Something went wrong. And here's how I know it went wrong. The richest nation in the world with the best hospital systems in the world had more people die from COVID than any other nation in the world. And I just think, I know what went wrong. You went wrong. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. You're saying that pretty clear. I don't know why anyone worships this guy anymore. I have no idea why we're not embarrassed that we put him on the cover of time magazine, but we did basically what you asked to be done. And we have the worst record in the world. Nigeria kicked our ass, India, you know what I mean? Third world countries, Haiti has almost no death from COVID. They couldn't afford vaccines, couldn't get near it. If they try to make an argument like they're not stacked on top of each other, they are living on top of each other in squalor. Did I think we have 3,000 deaths per million. Haiti has under 20 deaths per million from COVID. So 
this is all has to get out there. But all these things, you know, I would say at this point, as hard as it is, especially, you know, for those of us living in America still, and for those of you that have got out, good for you. <laughs> it's paradise here. I get it. But um, our, our nation is hanging the balance. We are on the verge of losing what that dream represented, what I think is the greatest governing document, set of documents that the world has ever seen in our constitution and declaration of independence and bill of rights. Um, it is all on the chopping block and whether it's a centralized digital currency owned by the fed, you know, or, you know, or it's the green new deal that is just now stating that 67% of cars are going to be electric in the United States of America by like 2032. That is destruction of humanity. There's no way you survive that. And what happens to Africa where they're mining these, you know, we're going we're gonna to turn lithium and cobalt into blood diamonds. And do we not care that children's arms, I mean, like the, the, the carnage that's about to happen from the insanity. We have our, you know, the story I did this week, this whole transgender enrollment of our children in kindergartens in first grade. I have no problem accepting people for who they are, but we are taking, I think on purpose, an argument for the, the super minority, lowest common denominator that probably has some real issues that need to be dealt with. And we're making it all of our children's issue. We're, we're undermining our children. We're undermining parents. And our governments are doing this to us, especially here in the United States of America. So um, I would say at this point, my perspective is I resist first. And you're going to have to talk me into it. You're going to have to show me some real data and evidence. Otherwise, I'm, I'm against almost everything coming out of my government at this moment. Yeah. I'd, I'd love for you to share the text you sent me. I think it was last week. Very excited text about the huge win yeah. that you guys had. with, And maybe just share what I can is yeah. so people who don't understand. So um, yeah, after I made Vax, I traveled the country and then I ended up starting a nonprofit because Vax was all about MMR vaccines. It's the only thing I knew about. So at that point, I studied all that was done, how they determined it didn't cause autism and all these things. But as we toured the country, we, every film, when we would get done, there'd be this line of people that want to tell us their personal story about vaccine injury. And it was massive. I mean, the, the, one of the things that happened was I think in the third screening, the first day we were kicked out of Tribeca. It's the most controversial film in the world. There's bomb threats being threatened. And you know, we find a theater in New York and there's a line down the block. And I was thinking, who are these people? So I, you know, I, the third screening, I decided the Q and a, you know, will everyone with a vaccine injured child, please stand up. I just want to see how many are out there. And three quarters of the room stood up. And I felt like the oxygen had been sucked out of the room. It was incredible. I mean, yeah, I had just spent, you know, a year basically, you know, in this film, but I had no idea it was like this. And it wasn't just that screening. It was every screening, four days a week, all across America for an entire year, three quarters of the audience is stepping up, standing up. And I just thought, what the hell is going on here? How the heck did they get away with this? And people would come up to me and say, Dell, you know, obviously I'm not getting the MMR vaccine because your film is so powerful, but what about the other 16 vaccines in the schedule? 
And all I could say is, look, I haven't investigated them, but I will tell you this, that there's people lining up. We have now done over a thousand interviews of these parents all across the country. And there's not a single vaccine that's not destroying lives. You know, people are saying my child died after a flu shot or a really popular one. Um, our star athlete, softball player, daughter or soccer playing son has been paralyzed ever since he got his Gardasil vaccine. And the big one when it came to autism was more people were coming up to me and saying, we never got to the MMR vaccine. We our child regressed in autism after the DTaP vaccine. That was it more. I mean, my film was only about MMR. And they're like, yeah, we never even got that far, which is two years old. We lost our kid at 18 months with DTAP. And so I started a nonprofit because I just, I wanted to be able to answer that. And so our nonprofit has read every single vaccine trial that has ever been done. Um, I hired an attorney, a constitutional attorney to sue the government because we have liability protections on vaccines. If you're not aware of that, in 1986, all liability was taken away, which is insane. When you think about the pharmaceutical industry, how often it puts out products that kill people, pays out billions of dollars after we find it out. We're going to give them a whole sector that we don't, we're never allowed to sue them. We're never allowed to get discovery. We're never allowed to find out what they know about these products and what they don't know. And the, the, um, just so people know, the reason behind that was because they stopped making vaccines, right? They threatened, they threatened Ronald yeah. Reagan. They basically in 1986 said, we're going to stop making all vaccines if you don't protect us from liability. Why? In their own words, because we are losing so much money from death and injury lawsuits that we cannot make a profit. Um, so when you think about the pharmaceutical industry and how many bad products are out there, they still make a profit on those, even when they lose a $3 billion lawsuit for Vioxx or talcum powder or, you know, it, you know, Fenfen. They did fine. In fact, you find out that they'd already done a mathematical calculation and said, we will totally accept the amount it will cost from those lawsuits because this is going to make us so much money. This is the, one of the sickest industries there is. Now, don't get me wrong. Great things come from pharma too, you know, there's, there's reasons it's there, but on its own, left to its own devices with no regulatory agencies in the way, which is what this has become, uh, we're really in danger. And so um, we have been suing and winning against the National Institute of Health because we thought if we can't sue the manufacturers, let's sue the government that is covering up for them, that's taken on that liability, which is what happened in 86. They basically said, we're going to do all the safety science now. We are going to be responsible for the injuries and we're going to leave pharma is going to be able to walk off with all the proceeds, never have to pay into anyone that's injured. We'll take that on. And it's amazing. I mean, this is a super, I mean, I could go on and on. It's such yeah. an interesting topic. But a podcast in and of itself. You, you realize sure. the government makes this decision thinking, oh, it's not going to be that bad. And suddenly within moments, they have thousands of families lined down the block suing for autism from vaccines that were going against pharma. And they're saying to themselves, oh, my God, we're paying out about four million dollars per case because of the loss of life in the future of this child. If we have to pay all these, we're going to bankrupt health and human services. We're going to bankrupt. We, we could bankrupt this nation. And that's where we're at now. We are now at autism is affecting one, and I believe it's 36 children is the official number now by the CDC. We have gone from one in 10,000 to in, in the 1970s and 80s to one in 36. It affects boys four to one, which means we are most likely at about one in 18 to 20 boys is being diagnosed with autism in America. That is, and 
just think about this. I don't, for where anyone's at, that is a true pandemic. That is destructive. That means you will not forget about mounting a standing army, you know, a decade or two down. We may not be able to mount a standing Starbucks. So we're in real trouble and not a single news station talks about it. That tells you that there is something going on here, right? So anyway, um, we have been suing the government, winning against NIH, FDA, Health and Human Services. And then we, we, one of the biggest cases we had was Washington, D.C. passed a law that allowed a 12-year-old child to consent to vaccinations without parental consent. The law was passed in Washington, D.C. And this law, just to give you an idea of the attack on your family, this law mandated that the doctor giving the vaccine would have to write up a fake vaccine card that, that did not include the vaccine the child agreed to, that the parents would see, and a different one they keep in-house. It mandated in the law that the insurance company has got to give you a different bill and bill you for something other than the vaccine so you can't see it. The law is saying lie. The insurance company has to lie to the family so they don't see that this happened. And then the school has to have a school recorded vaccination record that they keep and a different one that they hand the parents. You are talking about a collusion of government and, you know, doctors and schools against the parents. We went and uh, fought that and won. We, we were able to break that law and shut it down. But by far, two weeks ago, the biggest win we've had is um, Mississippi was the first state that I ever stopped. We were had the Vax bus and we were driving through with the film and, um, the moms, I got off the bus and said, we have all these meetings set up for you to talk to senators and, and assembly members and this and that. I was like, oh, I, I'm, I'm a filmmaker. Like, no, 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 come on, come on, come on, come on. And they dragged me in. I spent the whole day like talking to politicians and it actually changed my life. I was, I came out and think, oh, I was like, wow, I actually enjoy this. Like, I'm, I'm really good at this. Like the whole game of like sizing up a politician, trying to see what they care about. Like, how is there a way in on this conversation? Because we're like, the redheaded stepchildren, seriously, like, oh, great. The anti-vaxxers are here. <laughs> um, but so Mississippi has not had, uh, they were robbed, like SB 277 that took away basically religious and, and um, personal belief exemption in California. Mississippi lost theirs in 1979. I think it's the first state to be robbed of the ability to opt out of the vaccine program at all. And um, so we have been, I've been going there every year talking to their politicians and, you know, uh, they live in, they're in the Bible belt. So it's one of the places where I started bringing in my background, you know, my dad is a minister, like talking about the Bible, like how can you say you're creating the image and likeness of God, but you need 72 vaccines in order to live on this planet. Like, and, and I was really getting through to them, uh, but we just found an angle this year, uh, Aaron did. Um, he called me about a year ago and, and we were talking. He's like, look, I think there's a way to win the religious exemption back for, for the entire country. And I said, well, well, what is it? And he says, well, look, look, after there's been these lawsuits that happened because of COVID where churches suits, churches have like been fined and everything. So they went to court to say, why was I shut down in a church, but Walmart was open? And almost unanimously across the country, courts are deciding yeah, that was illegal. There's no way. And, and here's what it comes down to. Our constitution, you know, religious freedom is our first. I mean, there's a reason it's your first amendment, right? I mean, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. 
And so what it states essentially is that wherever there is a secular protection, there must also be a religious protection. You cannot protect one group and not, and then not protect the religious group. So in this case, Walmart was being protected and allowed to stay open. People could walk freely through the store, but a church wasn't being allowed to. That's illegal. And the courts have been stating that pretty much unanimously. And so Aaron said, we have the same argument. Every state that has taken away a religious exemption is giving a medical exemption to some kids, whether they're too sick or this and that. That's a secular exemption. And so we sued the attorney general of Mississippi for not protecting the first amendment. His job is to protect the first amendment. You are not protecting the first amendment of the right to religious beliefs. And the reason being, you were giving a medical exemption to some kids and not giving a religious exemption to other kids. Uh, no one had ever used that approach before. And uh, we just won. Mississippi is getting back the religious exemption immediately. Yeah. So that means we just set precedent to, um, um, to now we're going to go after West Virginia, California, uh, and, and we hope to make sure that everyone has the ability to opt out if they want in the future. Hell yeah. yeah. I guess we got to yep. wrap up time. Yeah. We're going to wrap. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a few moments and we'll, we'll come up with the panel. But dude, you're the best. Thanks, man. I love you, Thank man. You. You've been listening to The Great Unlearn. For more information, check out the show notes or head over to thegreatunlearned.com for additional episodes and information regarding events, retreats, and the TGU store. If you like what you heard today, please click subscribe and share this with friends who might enjoy our platform. Don't forget to leave that five-star rating and review as it really helps us spread the love and unlearning. You can find me on Instagram at cal.callahan and on YouTube under The Great Unlearn. Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon. No, no different, only different in your mind. You must unlearn what you have learned. <laughs>